we will be reading from the Gospel of Luke today. We will be reading chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It is an introduction to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alice, for getting us jump-started into the book of Luke. Jim and Josh, can I hand these to you real quick? Because I'll forget after service, and I don't want to do that. We got a gift for you guys, so come on up and grab it. This is for Jude, a little certificate. Multitasking dad right there. And Josh, there you go. Yeah, thanks, guys. I would totally forget, so we got to do that now. We got to take care of business. Well, good morning again on this first Sunday of Advent. I am grateful for uh, Neil's announcement and for our elders' care of my uh, family and me. I am super grateful for the sabbatical we'll be taking this summer. My wife leaned over and said, I object, you don't need a break. Uh, but <laughs> I think she's just teasing me. But um, we will talk about uh, the plan and the, uh, give you information along the way, so please know you won't be in the dark as we prepare as a congregation for next summer. This is really something we're embarking on together as we're going to take a break from June to August. And I promise our plan is to come back from that sabbatical. I want you to know that. That's one of the reasons I want to take one is because I want my entire vocational life to be in ministry. And it's a long game, isn't it? And you know that, and your life as a disciple is a long game. My life as a pastor is a long game. It's a marathon more than a sprint. And we'll look back, and those three months will be a blink, and we'll be into life together again in the fall. And so we're grateful for that. Our plan is to be here, uh, so I promise you that. Doesn't the church look Christmassy this morning? Looks so nice. We got a couple of things we didn't quite, a few more things we're going to get for next week, but we got it done for our first, Advent came quick this year. It was like Thanksgiving. Christmas. Like trees were up. You see people this weekend driving with trees. It was like, let's do this. Let's, let's get it going. And people did. So we're, uh, I'm thankful to a couple growth groups that did that as a project this year and a couple other individuals helped as well. Well, as it said, and you see the slide behind me and you saw maybe the wooden sign out in the hallway for our new series, we're entering into the Gospel of Luke and we're calling it Accomplished among us. Maybe you heard those words read in the first verses. And as some of you know, Luke's gospel begins with a, uh, the birth of Jesus. It begins with the birth of Jesus. And so it fits great with our Advent season to start the gospel of Luke right now. But we're actually after uh, Advent, we're just going to keep going in the gospel of Luke. And it'll take us up to summer and even after that probably a little bit. So a little bit about Luke. It is a super practical gospel. He was, Luke was a companion of Paul. He was a physician, and he was a really thoughtful man. As we go through this gospel, he's going to answer questions for us like these. Who, who was Jesus? What did he do? Why did he come? How did he prepare his disciples? And how will we, how will you and I respond to Jesus 
seeing his life in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke gives us a gradual revealing of Jesus throughout his Gospel. We're going to see him as a prophet. We're going to see him as a priest. We're going to see him as a king. We're also going to see him as the center of God's plan for the world. The fulfillment, really, of all the Old Testament prophecies we'll see that come to fruition in Jesus Christ. As we even read uh, Anna in in her Advent reading today, that hope that he will fulfill and do what he says he will do. That's in Jesus. We'll also see he's the center of God's grace and love, as the Gospel of Luke emphasizes love, actually uniquely among all the Gospels. You might think it was John, because for God so loved the world, but Luke actually mentions love more than any other Gospel. Love is unique in it. Other prominent themes will be salvation, the cross, and Luke's unique emphasis on the Holy Spirit also. He also wrote Acts, and you, we know in Acts is the, really the work of the outgoing work then of the Holy Spirit now that we have uh, the church in the, in the book of Acts. So the, the theme of the Holy Spirit. Um, but today we're going to look at Luke's purpose statement for writing his gospel. Isn't it, isn't it just nice of Luke? So friendly and nice of Luke to leave us behind a purpose statement of why he uh, wrote this gospel. Well, why did he write it and to who did he write it? Well, he wrote to a prominent Gentile man named Theophilus. He wrote to this, this, the excellent Theophilus even. It means he was probably a well-respected, maybe politician, something like that. Gentile, though. We don't know much about Theophilus, but from the thrust of the passage, I think we can know this at least. We get the sense that he's a new convert to Christianity. And maybe he has some sense and he's not quite sure if he belongs in this new group, in this new community. Do do I belong? And it's a question I want to start with today. Do you sometimes ever wonder or feel like, do I belong? Whether it's with a group of people or even in your own family. Maybe you were together with a gathering of family members this Thanksgiving a couple days ago, and you, you didn't even feel, even with your own family, like, do I belong here? Do I belong? Or coworkers or friends, do you ever feel like you just don't fit in? I, you probably have. I, ha- I feel that. You don't know what to say, maybe, in a given moment, or you don't know how to respond to a situation, or maybe you've even been attending Bethany Church for a while, and you're here, and you're like, I just can't seem to feel like I fit in or belong. Well, Luke writes his gospel so that a man, Theophilus, can believe with certainty that he's part of the true story of Jesus, and therefore belong in the family. Belong. And sometimes it takes rehearsing the family story to remember you belong. And so that's what we're going to do in the Gospel of Luke. So this morning, we begin the true story of Jesus by looking at Luke's purpose for writing the book so that we can come out the other side of it transformed and different. So hopefully you've got an outline there in your worship folder. You probably got one on the way in and have your text open. It's just four verses today. We'll get a much larger chunks coming up in these weeks, but we just wanted to start with this preview today, this purpose statement, which is really just one long sentence. And so let's look at Luke's masterful purpose statement. There's so much packed in these four verses by looking at three truths. Here's the first one. Luke writes a story of things accomplished among us by Jesus. Things accomplished among us by Jesus. Like an ancient explorer who tries to find the source of a river. Or like a modern-day road tripper with Apple Maps open, Luke gives us an explanation, 
a roadmap for his gospel, a source list. Here's where we're going. And he keys us in with this curious little phrase, things accomplished among us. I know he says, he says, a lot of people have tried to write down the story of Jesus and probably more even than the four gospels we have. They tried to write down the story of these things accomplished among us. But I'm going to set my hand to compiling, he says, or writing down even, he says, a story of things accomplished among us. Now, he could have said, I'm going to record history and as it happened or give you the details. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say as it happened. He says, things accomplished among us. It's as if he's wanting to say to us right away, Jesus happened. Something happened. A person happened even. I'm not just going to give you, Luke says, historical records or sayings or even just teachings of this great teacher. I'm not just going to do that, but I'm going to give you his story accomplished among us. Something much fuller and richer. And in fact, he goes, he's saying really that God has accomplished and fulfilled history in this man, Jesus. And this story of Jesus accomplished among us is proof that God is working in history. And he continues to work. And he has accomplished great things in his great plan in Jesus' life. And then that means then he will for us too. If he's accomplished so much through Jesus Christ, and Luke tells us that right up front, things accomplished among us, he's still accomplishing things amongst us now. Things in your life you can't even, you don't even know about yet that he's doing. Now, Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus' life. We want to be clear with that. He wasn't an eyewitness, but he was a second generation. If you ever want to know with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you bookend it with Matthew and John, who were eyewitnesses, and in the middle, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, were not. They were more second generation. Luke was a second generation Christian. But what helps his case is that he writes early enough, probably 25 to 45 years after Jesus' life. He writes really close after Jesus' life to say that Jesus' life was accomplished among us. Why? Because there were those still living who lived among Jesus. So he could say that, things accomplished among us, because there was still, it was early enough that there were still people living that would have seen Jesus as eyewitnesses, face to face, heard him teach, seen him after he resurrected from the dead. So he can say that, and it still is true. But this second generation now with Luke, and now us, what generation are we? You want to take a guess? I don't know. We are a lot of generations later. But 2,000 years later, we don't have the luxury, do we, of hearing Jesus' audible voice and knowing it so well that we could identify him like if he called us on the phone, oh yeah, I, know, I recognize that voice. You know, you pick up somebody, I mean, we've got caller, it doesn't make any sense at all, does it? We have caller ID now, so you don't, you don't. but remember the days when you had to pick up a phone and you kind of knew who it was right away? Oh, I know that voice. They just had to say hello, and you're like, oh, it's Bob. You know, it's Sue. Oh, it's my son, it's my daughter. You just knew. We don't have that luxury, do we? But there were those that did. Remember Mary in the garden? She didn't recognize him, but what did she recognize? Oh, his voice. All he had to do was say her name. Oh, and she got it. So Luke writes to Theophilus a story 
so that we can know what they saw, the ones that did know his voice by ear, the ones that did see his miracles, the ones that did see him rise from the dead. So can it hit you in a fresh way? You know the story of the birth especially. Maybe the rest of Luke will be a little more fuzzy and maybe you haven't read it in a while. But can it hit you and I in a fresh way? I believe it can. I think even Christmas can hit us in a fresh way. Or how about you are here today and you love the idea of Christmas maybe. A baby being born who would save the world and bring peace on earth and peace between God and humanity. If that's you, Luke is writing to someone like you today. Someone who can only hear things secondhand or maybe hundredth hand, whatever the generation is. We can't hear it firsthand, but we can hear from those who did. And that's what Luke's wanting us to get in this prologue, this preview today. And why does he write that? Because he knows that the birth of Jesus, that the life of Jesus is a pretty fantastical story, actually. You wouldn't believe it unless you saw it. You wouldn't. But it's not written in a way to give us kind of like these airtight arguments. I was reading in one commentator this week for God's existence as if God is giving you the book of Luke to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt with these arguments that Jesus existed and he was who he said he was. He's not giving us those airtight arguments. The commentator I read said he gives us an airtight person. A person. Jesus accomplished among us is what Luke says. And he wants you to look at him throughout this gospel, in his person, who he is, what he says, what he does, to be changed by him, to have an encounter with him. We want to look at Jesus through this gospel. That commentator went on, he said, he's an airtight person, not arguments, he's an airtight person with whom there are no holes. He's an infallible person whom you can't argue against. So who do we get in this gospel, this portrayal of Jesus? On the one hand, on the one hand, he's so loving, we're going to see. He's so welcoming. And one of Luke's big themes in the gospel is that outsiders, a Gentile like Theophilus, become insiders. The outcasts become the welcome guest or the adopted sons and daughters. That's a big theme. He goes to the poor in love. He goes to women. He goes to children. He goes to sinners. He goes to lepers. He goes to sexual sinners even, and Gentiles. And we'll see that in Luke. We'll see that. We'll see Jesus make the outsider become the insider, make the one who doesn't belong become the one who belongs. That's beautiful. And that will melt our hearts. But also it's going to probably challenge us as we see Jesus go to the outsider. Because back to that original question, he loves the one who doesn't feel like they belong. And the way he does move towards those outcasts is absolutely way more incredible than we could ever understand in our day and age. The way he goes to the outsider was totally over the top for them. they just like, what is he thinking? What is he doing? Why is he going towards those people? And it will probably challenge us too. So on the one hand, we get this really loving, welcoming Jesus. But on the other hand, when we look at Jesus in this gospel, we're going to see he makes such uh, self-important claims about himself that even the most pompous 
arrogant dictator wouldn't even think to make for themselves or himself. He can forgive sins. He's equal with God the Father. He'll judge the world. So on the other hand, God is not only portraying this loving, welcoming Jesus, but he's also portraying a shocking Jesus who says things that no one would ever dare say really throughout history unless they really were out of their mind. He's trying to shock us awake with these grand statements of Jesus, trying to surprise us that the things he has accomplished among us are absolutely radical. I mean, think about it. The last people on earth that would believe that God would become a man and the Son of God, Jesus, was our Savior in the, in the way he was born, we're going to talk about in the Advent season, the last people on earth who would believe that would be the monotheistic Jews. And yet, the story of Jesus' life was so incredible that many believed, many of those Jews did believe he was the divine Messiah and Savior, the Son of God. They couldn't be tricked into that. They were monotheistic Jews for millennia, yet they were the first ones to believe. It's a story of things accomplished among us, Theophilus, he says. It's like 2 Corinthians 4. It's, a, it's about Jesus, for that we, what we proclaim is not ourselves in the story, Luke is saying, but things accomplished among us. But Jesus Christ as Lord, Paul writes, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, God sent a person as real as those babies we just had up front here. God sent a person in a true story, and at Christmas, the person of Jesus, right? It's front and center for us, isn't it? As real as those babies. And that baby grew and accomplished great things among us, Luke says. The story is about Jesus. Well, he goes on. He wants us to know something else, too. Luke writes a story that he wants us to know is true. So it was things accomplished among us about Jesus, but he wants us to know it was true, too. In verses 2 through 3, Luke goes to great efforts, really, to help us believe that we really can believe the information he's recorded about Jesus. He truly wants Theophilus to know that he has credibility as one writing this story of Jesus. You know, one of the challenges for many people uh, is that they're not sure they can trust sometimes the account of Jesus' life or what his followers say about him or why would somebody devote their life to a man who's been dead for 2,000 years. The radical claims he makes too. But it's not as if people of the past were gullible. Sometimes we think that in history, that history will only progress, we only get smarter, and people of the past were ignorant like desert wanderers who didn't know their right from their left. No, 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 no. It's not, it wasn't like that. They're not, they weren't gullible as if they would easily believe these fantastical stories about a virgin birth. No. About a divine God-man who raised from the dead to forgive people. They weren't gullible. They understood the difference between uh, fiction and, and truth or reality and a lie. They would understand that. And Luke, we know that because Luke really goes to great efforts here to make sure and give certainty to Theophilus 
and us that this really happened. The things that were accomplished really were accomplished. They're not fabricated stories. Look at two, uh, three again with me, two and three. The things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, those things accomplished among us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theoph- Theophilus. He says basically to Theophilus and to us, let me tell you where I got my information. Let me take you back to the source of the river. And he, he says, I went back to the beginning in these verses, which he does by beginning all the way back with John the Baptist and with Jesus' birth in a unique birth account only in Luke. And many have, he says, many have written their own accounts. Lots have. We have three others, Matthew, Mark, and John. And he says in those verses, I've talked to eyewitnesses who were ministers. It means they not only saw Jesus, but the ministers were those who labored as gospel preachers and missionaries of the good news. I've talked to these eyewitnesses. When Paul was on trial, not Luke now, we're transitioning to Paul. When Paul was on trial before King Agrippa in Acts 26, the other book that Luke wrote, he tells the story of Jesus to this King Agrippa and how Jesus appeared to him and he changed him from a persecutor of Christians to a, a follower of Christians. Do you know how Agrippa responded to Paul? He said to Paul, you're too smart for your own good, Paul. All your learning has made you crazy. <laughs> he said, you're losing your mind, Paul, is what he told him. You're crazy. But Paul looked at him and said to him, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. It's kind of interesting, huh? Most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his. That's the king's notice. But this has not been done in a corner. What Paul is saying to there to the king and what Luke is saying in his prologue is that thousands of people saw Jesus. This wasn't done in a corner or under a rock. I'm not crazy, king. Theophilus, I really want you to know with certainty this happened. Jesus had friends. He had enemies. And the things he did and saw were witnessed by multitudes. I mean, how do you feed 5,000 with a miracle, record it, and it not have be ever challenged in history anywhere, until maybe today in modern era, not challenged in history unless it really happened. I mean, there's 5,000 people you could go ask, right? <laughs> These things happened. You would know someone of those 5,000, at least who knew someone who was there. It wouldn't have been that hard. You would know. And these eyewitnesses, Luke said, have delivered the message in the text says. It's a technical term. It's not not like delivered like, hey, did you hear what happened? Like, remember when you played that game, Telephone, where you start something at the beginning, you get to the end, and you start with a line that's like, you know, don't move, there's a gigantic spider behind you. 
It ends out like slow cook the apple butter and tissues. Something like that, right? That telephone game where it would end up weird at the beginning and you kind of go whisper it to somebody next, to the person next to you. That's not what Luke means when he says they delivered it. Like a quick, hey, do you hear what happened? And where it gets distorted throughout time and messengers. Like the game of telephone. No, they were trained, this word means, as they delivered it. They were trained in how to remember and communicate oral tradition. It was a technical term. It's paradosis. It doesn't really matter, but that's the word. It means seeing something and then passing something along without changing it. It means you absolutely committed it to memory and you couldn't add and you couldn't change. They were different in us that way. I can barely remember what I had for breakfast. They were trained in this. The eyewitnesses had seen, and so they spoke, they ministered it. They were eyewitnesses who were ministers. They saw it and spoke it. It means they had integrity and could be trusted. Integrity and trusted. And if that's the case, that means you and I need to have integrity too. These eyewitnesses had integrity. They could be trusted. Because you and I are ministers of the gospel as well. Not just me, but all of us. If you believe the accounts of Jesus too, now your life matters. Because what you say about Jesus will be connected who you are to your integrity as Luke connected to the, to the integrity of the eyewitnesses. If there was a great disconnect between those eyewitnesses and their life and their message, Luke would have never believed it. Theophilus would have never believed it. And Luke goes to great efforts to point to those eyewitnesses. Let it never be said of us. Yeah, I know she says she's a Christian, but I, I know the real her. Or yeah, I know he goes to Bethany Church, but I know him at work. <laughs> I know work him. Let our message of Jesus match our lives. Let us deliver it, as the text says. Let us deliver it as people with integrity whose lives back up what they say and believe or live at least if we have trouble sometimes saying it, which we do, let us live at least in such a way so that if they find out we're Christians, which I hope they will, those in your life, it'll match up. Well, one of the other ways we know, not only the eyewitnesses, one of the other ways we know Luke writes a true story, apart from the fact that he wrote within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, is this. The writing that we have in all the Gospels, actually, there's a, there's a bunch of these arguments, but I want to just give you one today. They're kind of interesting. The writing is just too detailed to be made up. What do I mean by that? I want to help us understand that. The writing is too detailed to be made up. You know, all the Gospels have these little details that the writers throw in. And yet the details don't add to the story. And the, and the writers actually usually don't go back to them. The authors don't go back and explain them. They just sort of put them in there. One's from the Gospel of John. Remember, they come in. I think it's after Jesus has been resurrected, and they come in to see him, and it says there that they caught 153 fish. Actually gives a number there. They caught 153 fish. Well, why would that be in the story? It adds nothing to that story if you go in and read that story. It doesn't help anything in the story. It seems like a random detail, and John never goes back to explain why he puts it in there. Right now, I'm reading um, with my kids I like to read books from time to time. We're reading um, the legends of, of King Arthur with them. Now, those were written probably around the year 1100. 
A.D. And they were written five or 600 years after he lived. That's if he did actually live. There's debate all about that. But when you read them, they are to be an account of his life, maybe things that he accomplished. But when you read those things written in 1100 A.D., there are no random details, like 153 fish. Why? No one had ever written like that in history yet. Even up to the 1100s, no one had written like that. In fact, what we don't actually understand is that it's only actually in the last 300 years of all of history that authors have begun to write in what you might call a um, developed, like a realistic type of, of fiction that puts strange, random details in. That never happened in all of history until a few hundred years ago. It would have been general story. There would be no random details in there. So when we read it in the Gospels, we don't really realize that and, and, and understand that probably. And we just read it like, oh yeah, 153 fish, no big deal. That's how people write today. They give random details to make it seem real. You know, We don't get the significance. So to write that way, 153 fish, 2,000 years ago, was totally unnatural. It hadn't been invented yet. No one had ever written like that at all in history, and nobody does again until like 300 years from na- uh, back from our time. And C.S. Lewis, who knew myths, legends, he had a PhD in that and taught that, has this just totally quote that like takes the rug out from under people that criticize the Gospels. He says this, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myth, myths all my life. He says, I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this, referring to the Gospels. Of this text, there's only two possible views. Either this is reported, just means it's a true account, or else some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. That just means those random details. If it's untrue, he says, it must be narrative of that kind, the reader who doesn't see this just simply hasn't learned to read yet. He's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty clear and straightforward there, right? And then after that argument absolutely kind of destroys any argument that says these gospels were written to be deceptive. No one had ever written like that, and no one does again until modern fiction. So either it was somebody having, creating something thousands of years before it would ever be done, actually, or it really happened and they caught 153 fish. There really isn't any other explanation for it. Luke is going to such great trouble to let us know this is true stuff. And some of these tiny details we'll see in Luke back that up. It's like, I've done my work so you can believe it with certainty. Look at verse four. Excellent, Theophilus, I've, I've done all this so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. It has to be true, or none of it makes sense, actually. I mean, if it's not true, the claims of Jesus he made make no sense. They're fantastical. They're incredible. They have to be true, or it just doesn't make any sense. But it is a story, and that matters tremendously. It's a story. It's our third and final truth. Luke writes a story Because the story of Jesus is what saves you.
He writes a story because a story is what saves you. In verse 1, Luke says, I'm going to compile, I'm going to handwrite a narrative of things that have been accomplished. A narrative means what? A story. It's a story. He isn't just going to write the teachings of Jesus, a great teacher. He's not just going to compile some small events, which would be like kind of King Arthur's stories. No, this is a grand narrative. He uses that word purposefully. A grand story of Jesus. Now, story can mean fiction, can't it? We might take it that way. But as we've already seen, Luke's made a really great effort for us to know this gospel is not going to be fiction, but truth. So the gospel is a true story. And here's why that matters. Absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. And I'm not the first to come up with this, and I've you know, and others have said this, but every other religion of the world writes down the sayings of their teacher. None of them are really in story form like the Gospels. They are, as Lewis said, absolutely unique. They write down the sayings of their teacher in little pithy statements and lines. Here's what Buddha said. Here's what Muhammad said. Why is that? Well, in every other religion of the world, you are saved by following the teachings of the great teacher. Every other religion of the world. It's by following those teachings of the great teacher that saves you, not us, not Christians. And now there are great teachings in the Gospel of Luke, and it's probably got the most unique parables of any gospel, and we're going to see that. But Luke says, no, this is a story. It's the reason the Christmas story matters. Jesus born of a virgin, born fulfilling all these prophecies, born with shepherd eyewitnesses, born outside in a stable. The reason story matters is because the story is what saves you. Not following the teachings that although they are important and one who's saved will want to follow them, the story is what saves you. His actions, in other words, is what I mean. The things Jesus did, his things accomplished among us. That's what saves you. If we didn't have a story to tell at Christmas and Easter, if we didn't have a story, then you would be saved by how good you are. But we have a story, don't we? We have a story. We actually have the best story. And because we have a story, it means you can be saved by grace. That's why it really matters. Because we have a story, you can be saved by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone because he's the one that accomplished the things among us. It matters, story. We're saved by what he did and what he did is the story. You're taking a moment just to think about the teachings of Jesus. Think think about for a moment the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew, it's a long section. It's his greatest recorded long sermon I think uh, Chosen Season 3 is going to start there, the Sermon on the Mount. If you watch that show, you kind of get an idea of where the life of Jesus' ministry. It's Jesus' greatest teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. It's terrifying if you put your life up against it, isn't it? It's terrifying. No one measures up to that. 
Now, of course, it's truth, and it's good teaching, and it is a guide for us, but just as much as it is good teaching and a guide, it's there to show us we need a story with a hero to save us because no one measures up to it. A story. Who has ever lived the Sermon on the Mount even marginally good other than Jesus probably? We need Jesus to rescue us even from the Sermon on the Mount. We need that story before we can ever live it. I was watching the great movie um, Hugo with my kids this last week. Anybody seen that? It's like probably 10 years old now, but good movie. It was really, uh, critics, you know, well-liked. And I was watching with my kids last week, and if you hadn't seen it, I'm going to describe some of it to you. But it's a story of an orphan boy. That's him in the front there, Hugo. And he lives in the walls of a Paris train station. It's kind of fascinating. And he lives in those walls, and he takes care of the big clocks in the train station behind the walls and winds them and oils them and takes care of them after his um, alcoholic uncle dies. So he's hiding in the walls. No one knows he's there as living as an orphan taking care of these clocks. It's kind of a sad story in a lot of ways. And there's another main character in it. It's the man third in the back with a little white uh, goatee and mustache who plays actually a real-life person, George Millier. But in, this, in the movie, he's just a shell of a man. He used to be great and wonderful. He was a famous silent movie maker in the 20s and 30s who had given up his craft uh, because he'd b- become bankrupt and ended up working anonymously, anonymously. He was famous, but he ended up working anonymously in a toy store in the train station. So you get the connection now. Hugo and the, George, the, tr- the uh, movie maker, becomes a toy maker. And throughout the movie, your heart is attached to this boy, Hugo, this orphan. As he tries to kind of work his way into George's life, who continually scolds him and rejects him, as if an orphan needed more of that. Continually rejects him over and over again. But throughout the course of the movie, Hugo finds out his identity. He finds out who George is. He's this famous filmmaker who now lives in obscurity. And he shows him one of his old films, surprisingly. George walks in the room and it's playing on this old projector. He shows him one of his old films and and, and George's heart begins to change towards the boy, this orphan. And it's in the climax of this movie where they rescue Hugo from the nasty station sergeant. He's the one in the back there who's got this really kind of sick pleasure of capturing orphans and sending them off to the orphanage. He loves to do it. And he always catches them in the train station. And when they rescue him, when George comes and he's there with the train master and, and, and Hugo, George looks at Hugo and he says to Gustav, the train station manager who captured him, he looks and he says, this boy belongs to me. And we absolutely watching it love that line. And it melts our hearts and some of us tear up. Not me, of course, but some of us do. We tear up even. Why do we love that line? Why is it the climax of the movie? Why do we love a story of redemption, a story of a father taking in an orphan child saying, this boy belongs to me? It's because it points to the gospel story. Jesus came to save us from spiritual orphanage. 
So the father could look at us and say, she belongs to me. He belongs to me. The story of the Bible isn't actually about us. I mean, it's for us. It's written to us. But it's not actually about us. And if we look at the Bible that way, we do a great disservice to the story in the Bible. See, a lot of us have read the Bible. Maybe you grew up this way even in Sunday school. We read the Bible like moral tales, especially the Old Testament. Be like David and slay the giants of your life. Be like Abraham, this great man of faith, and have great faith like Abraham. Or be like Moses and be a strong person, strong man and a leader. And I think even the reason we have so many problems in our life is because we've messed up the story and believed actually that it's about us. We thought we were the hero if we could just live the right way. Sermon on the Mount. If we could just live the right way. Do you know why? Do you know at the end of Luke's gospel, there's a great story. There were two men. He ends his gospel this way. We'll get there in many Sundays from now. But he ends his gospel. We're going to get a beginning and an end kind of preview today with these two men. And they were followers of Jesus. After he'd resurrected, he goes and sees these two men. They were going to a village, Emmaus, Luke records, seven miles from Jerusalem. That's one of those random details, by the way. And they were despondent because they thought he would be the Savior. But he died. But Jesus comes up to them, and they're kept from recognizing him. I don't know how, whether it's divine power or Jesus in his new glorified body looked a little different maybe. They don't recognize him, and they say, and he says to them, what's going on, guys? And they really look at him, and they're like, really tell him, have you been living under a rock? Is basically what they tell him. They recount the crucifixion to him. Have you been living under a rock? These things were not done like in corners, like Paul says. And he looks at them and says, oh, foolish ones. And low of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The story, the story. And then he says to him, and what he does is, actually it says what he does is, Luke records, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, he told them the narrative of the things that had been accomplished among them. Let me tell you the story, he says to these two men. The story is about me, he says. If David's about you, King David, with Goliath, defeating the giants in your life, maybe like illness, cancer, loneliness, financial ruin, unemployment. If, if David's about you, defeating the giants in your life, It's up to you. You will never be like David. Do you know that? But if even King David's story with Goliath is about Jesus, which Jesus did and said, hey, let me tell you, the story's about me. But if it's about Jesus, I am the ultimate David who went out seemingly unmatched like this little David to fight your battles for you and defeat even the giants of sin and death in your life. If that's what David's ultimately about and pointing us to, then you can even face something like death 
because you have a hero that faced your ultimate death. It's a story. See, you'll never be a David unless you look to the one to whom David points. That's why we take the Old Testament to Jesus. And that's the story, the story of Hugo, right? Point to the power of adoption and redemptive love. Think of our story. He's born in a manger. The king tries to kill him. He escapes and takes on evil and death. He's captured and killed, but then he resurrects, making a way for us to be adopted into his family. He's not one more story pointing to the truths of stories like Hugo. He's the truth to which all those great stories point. It's the ultimate story. And that is Christmas, the true story of the unlikely hero coming to make a way for us to be adopted. So how are we going to take this Gospel of Luke? What's it hopefully going to do for us? It's just that little subpoint there. We're going to hopefully believe, as he encourages Theophilus to do. I hope you're going to feel like you belong to him, adopted in that community, Believe because it's eyewitnesses, it's a true account, belong because it's all about Jesus and the story of him saving us, and be transformed too. That's what we're going to do in the Gospel of Luke. That's where we're going to go. It's my prayer, not only for Advent, but as we head into uh, the winter and into next year, we'll keep going. Let's pray that the Lord would help us believe, belong, and be transformed. Jesus, will you do that? Will you, with the Gospel of Luke, Let us see it with fresh eyes again and let us believe. Let us know we can believe because it's true and eyewitnesses saw it. And Luke, you went to all this trouble to say, I've carefully recorded these things that eyewitnesses saw so that you can know with certainty, Theophilus. Let us believe. But let us also belong to the family of God, to Bethany Church, to the Universal Church, Belong because it ultimately is a story about God who comes as a hero in the birth of Jesus to save us. But let us also be transformed. Let us not just look at it and go, hey, great story. But because it's true, let us become more like Christ each and every week throughout this gospel. Let us be transformed. In Christ's name, amen.